This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We will produce them, and we will play them back. They are some of our favorites. The American people, you, our listeners, are terrific writers and storytellers. In the annals of American capitalism, there is probably no crazier, wilder, more chaotic boom to bust and back again phenomenon than the Comstock load in the 1860s, the richest couple of square miles on Earth. This small section of dirt changed the destiny of the United States. Here to tell this rags-to-riches frontier tale is Old West historian Roger McGrath. McGrath is a professor in Southern California and the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. Here's Roger. If ever there were real-life figures who could have been characters in a Horatio Alger novel, it was the Silver Kings. John Mackey, James Fair, William O'Brien, and James Flood epitomized the rags-to-riches American dream. John Mackey is the engineering genius of the Silver Kings. Born in Ireland in 1831, he immigrates with his family to New York in 1840. He reaches the California gold fields in 1851. He enjoys hard physical work and mining camp life. He has almost no formal education and had stuttered badly when young, but he is blessed with extraordinary intelligence. James Fair is a mine superintendent without peer and a shrewd financier. Born in Ireland in 1831, he immigrates with his family to Illinois during the early 1840s. He has enormous energy, a trenchant mind, and a natural aptitude for all things mechanical. He joins the gold rush to California in 1849. William O'Brien is born in Ireland in 1826 and brought to New York as a small child. By the time he joins the gold rush of 49, he has grown into a large man of erect carriage. He will soon have a head of prematurely white hair. His size, posture, and hair give him a dignified appearance. Unlike his partners, he is soft-spoken, with an avuncular, kindly quality about him. He is the least forceful of the Silver Kings, but his gregarious and genial nature make him the most popular and ideal for public relations. James Flood is the only Silver King not to have been born in Ireland. He's born in New York in 1826, shortly after his Irish immigrant parents arrive. He catches the gold fever in 1849 and sails around the Horn to California. He has a quick wit, a shrewd mind, a volatile temper, and a powerful drive to succeed. He is a genius in trading stocks and in finance. Mackie Fair, O'Brien, and Flood all spend the early 1850s prospecting and mining in California, and each has some success. With his earnings from the diggings, O'Brien opens a marine supply store in San Francisco. Flood, with the money he has made, opens a livery and carriage shop just down the street from O'Brien. Both lose their businesses, though, in the Depression of 1855. They then join forces and open a saloon. O'Brien reasons the only thing that does not go down in a depression is the consumption of alcohol. He's right, and their saloon thrives. Flood handles the business end of the operation while O'Brien greets customers and serves roast beef sandwiches that come complimentary 
with a drink. By the early 1860s, Flood and O'Brien are dabbling in mining stock, buying and selling shares in mines that tap into the great Comstock load in Nevada. Flood has an uncanny ability in stock trading. Within a few years, he and O'Brien amass a small fortune. In 1868, they open their own stock brokerage office in San Francisco. Mackey and Fair, working separately, also spend the early 1850s prospecting in California. Here's Comstock Lode historian Ronald James speaking to us at the location of the historic Comstock Lode strike. The first miners who came here were after gold. Gold's easy. Gold doesn't combine with many things, so you can actually even pick it out of, the, of their washed dirt with tweezers and you hope for a nugget, but you find little flakes of gold. And that's how you can pull the gold out. What they weren't expecting was anything else that would be valuable. The two miners who were coming up here, a couple of Irish immigrants, were just looking for a good place to, to dam up a, a natural spring so they could get water because they were placer mining like the original California gold miners of the of 1849 and they were hoping that they could find some water throw some dirt into their uh, long toms which were these wooden boxes and wash the dirt while they were damming a natural spring they found which was right up here they started throwing some of the dirt in there and found immediately that they were uncovering several ounces of gold and it was a very good day, and it was the first of many good days. In fact, 20 years worth of good days. They were complaining for those first few weeks after the strike in June of 1859. These early miners complained about this blue mud that gummed up their works because as you wash away the lighter soil, it leaves gold behind, but it was also leaving behind this blue mud that was really obnoxiously heavy and it was hard to separate it from the, from the gold. So after several weeks, they took a, an ore sample over to California and said, what exactly do we have here? And what they found was that it, if you had a ton of this stuff, it would produce over $800 in gold when gold was selling for $16 an ounce. But what was really surprising that it was that it would produce over $3,000 in silver when silver was selling for $1.60 an ounce. And so that's really where everyone understood just how wealthy this ore body, or using the Cornish word load, was. And then it became known as the Comstock load. When they learn of the Comstock load strike at Virginia City, they head over the Sierras to Nevada. The people who came to the Comstock were an international body of, of people. Nevada actually had, in, in the 1870 census, more foreign-born per capita than any other state in the nation, you know, more than the great immigrant states of, you think of Massachusetts and Boston and New York and how vibrantly international those places were, Chicago. A lot of Europeans, obviously, a large group of Chinese uh, lived in, in, here. Uh, they, they came from all over. They often arrived as single men. And so it, it was a, a very masculine community. And when we come back, more on the lives of these four risk takers, James Flood, John Mackey, James Fair, and William O'Brien, the Silver Kings. The story of the Comstock Lode continues here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories and the story of John Mackey, James Fair, James Flood, and William O'Brien, the Silver Kings. Let's pick up with Roger McGrath, where we last left off. Mackey works as a pick and shovel miner for $4 a day, then as a timberman for six. Soon he develops his own business, excavating and fortifying tunnels. Much of his pay is in the form of stock certificates. Now, most of these prove worthless, but a few give him enough money to buy the Kentuck, a mine whose ore has supposedly been exhausted. Mackey sinks a new shaft in the Kentuck and hits a rich deposit. During the next several years, the mine pays over a million dollars in dividends, huge money in the 1860s. Mackey also has said he will retire as soon as he has 25,000 in the bank. Well, now he has many times that, but his appetite has only been whetted for new adventures and enterprises. While Mackey is working the Kentuck, James Fair becomes superintendent of the Ufer, one of the richest mines on the Comstock. In 1868, he enters into a partnership to develop new mining properties with Mackey. I'm standing at the base of the Ophir pit, and they called it Ophir after Ophir, the gold mine of King Solomon in the Old Testament. By asserting that this was the Ophir mine, they were claiming that this was a mine of biblical proportions, and they got it right because Hundreds of millions of dollars came out of the ground beginning right here. Back in San Francisco, Jim Flood and Bill O'Brien take notice of these two young upstarts on the Comstock. Soon they are discussing joining forces. And in 1869, the San Francisco stockbrokers and the Comstock miners form a partnership. By the early 1870s, through wise investments and daring gambles, the four Irishmen are challenging William Ralston of the Bank of California for control of the Comstock. In 1872, they buy the Consolidated Virginia Mine for $100,000 from Ralston's right-hand man in Virginia City, William Sharon. Sharon gleefully reports to Ralston the Irishmen have been taken. The Consolidated Virginia, says Sharon, is a bankrupt piece of property. Over a million dollars has already been wasted in the mine in fruitless exploration. Mackey and Fair have a hunch if they cut a new tunnel at a deeper level, they will hit a vein of ore. For several months, they tunnel, pouring 200,000 into the consolidated Virginia, but hoisting up nothing but worthless rock. William Sharon roars with laughter. Then one day, Mackey and Fair hit a delicately thin vein of ore. They try to follow it, but it disappears. They find it again, but again it disappears. They find it a third time. This time the vein begins to widen, to a foot, to several feet, to a half dozen feet, to 12 feet. Mackey and Fair send word to Flood and O'Brien in San Francisco. The stockbrokers quickly buy up as much outstanding consolidated Virginia stock as they can. The deeper the new shaft is sunk in the consolidated Virginia, the wider the vein becomes. At the 1,500-foot level, the vein is more than 50 feet wide. The ore is so rich, waste rock has to be added to it to put it through the stamp mill. The Irishmen have discovered the very heart of the Comstock load, what is called 
the Big Bonanza. For the rest of their lives, they are known as the Silver Kings. Here again is Ronald James. In 1873, they found what was called the Big Bonanza, which was a, a, a huge deposit of gold and silver that if Virginia City wasn't famous before, and it was, it then was permanently famous. And I'm not sure without the Big Bonanza, we would have the Cartwrights and the, and the television show Bonanza. Here, the, the Comstock load, the combination of gold and silver, started expanding as they went underground to five feet, 10 feet, at, and at its, at its widest, up to 60 feet wide of nearly pure gold and silver. I mean, obviously mixed it with some rock, but you had, to, you had to dig it all out. You couldn't stop doing that. The problem is you cannot find a log stout enough to span 60 feet, even 20 feet without snapping, because it has to hold up a mountain and mountains want to collapse in on empty space. So they brought in a German immigrant by the name of Philip Didesheimer, who developed the square set timbering method. And it was basically a series of cubes that uh, could be in modular fashion added to so that whatever the stope, the empty space left over when you dug out all the gold and silver, whatever that stope was shaped like, you could fill it up with a stout framework of timber. And then you would fill it back with waste rock as you dug even deeper in, inside the mine. So it was a really nice, stable way to support a mine as you were pursuing precious metals. And that was exported throughout the world. It's only the first of many inventions, flat wire cable, the safety cage. This was the first place where uh, dynamite was experimented with in a big way underground. Uh, it was the first place where uh, uh, air compressed drills were used. Uh, so it became one invention after the next that defined international underground mining for the next 50 or 60 years. By 1875, the Silver Kings are fabulously wealthy. The Consolidated Virginia is paying dividends of a million dollars a month, something like a hundred million in today's money. San Francisco is seized by a speculative mania. If the Consolidated Virginia has hit the big bonanza, other mines might also. Thousands of shares of mining stock trade daily. People make and lose fortunes overnight. Charwomen buy the hotels they scrub floors in. Hack drivers give away their carriages to live on Knob Hill. Chinese gambling dens close because Chinese are gambling in mining stocks instead of Fantan. From 1873 to 1882, the Consolidated Virginia yields 65 million in gold and silver and pays 43 million in dividends, more than 4 billion in today's dollars. Here again is Ronald James. The, the deepest shaft here dropped over 3,000 feet, 3,200 feet. It's over a half mile, a straight elevator drop. And keep in mind, this is in 1870, 1880, when most people have never ridden an elevator anywhere. And to, to imagine these people being dropped down over half miles straight down, it, it, it really is something. There was a law on the Nevada books that said it's against the law to talk to a hoist operator. He was the fellow who, who was running the, the spool as it lowered the cages down. And it's, it's illegal to talk to a hoist operator while he's working, because if you distract him and he's off by 10 feet, that, that could be fatal to the, to the guys in the cage as they drop down. The Silver Kings all live riotously well and die with multi-million dollar estates. William O'Brien 
contributes to charities and supports all his close relatives, especially the McDonough and Coleman families of San Francisco. James Flood buys San Francisco real estate, erects numerous buildings, funds new business ventures, and establishes the Nevada Bank. The Nevada Bank later merges with Wells Fargo. He donates large sums to charities. He and his wife and their children live on the fabulous 35-acre estate at Menlo Park. James Fair is elected to the U.S. Senate from Nevada, but spends most of his time accumulating real estate in San Francisco. He becomes the city's largest taxpayer. He also establishes two banks and a railroad. John Mackey forms a telegraph company, lays a cable across the Atlantic, and breaks the Western Union monopoly. He makes more millions. During his lifetime, he gives away more than five million in gifts. He also tears up IOU notes worth more than two million, like forgiving 200 million in today's money. When the great fire of October 1875 destroys the central part of Virginia City, including the town's Catholic Church, St. Mary's of the Mountains, Mackey donates much of the money to have St. Mary's rebuilt bigger and better than ever. During a slow period on the Comstock, Mackey secretly pays a Virginia City grocer to supply provisions to any miner out of work. He also is the largest contributor to Sisters Hospital, requiring only that his donations be kept confidential. John Mackey, James Fair, William O'Brien, and James Flood demonstrate that Horatio Alger characters were not confined to novels, but were found for real in America. And there you have it, the story of the Silver Kings. And my goodness, a $100,000 investment back then, and then plowing 200000 down more, digging, digging without success, digging again without success, reminding us of so many of the stories we've done in Midland, Texas, and the frackers who are doing the same thing underneath the ground that these Silver Kings were back in the day. This is Lee Habib, the Silver King's story, here on Our American Stories. Where the rain never falls, the sun never shines, it's dark as a dungeon way down in the mine. Well, it's And we continue here with our American stories. And here on this show, you know we love music. And we've talked about this great American singer on the show before as part of our series, This Day in Music History. Called the First Lady of Song, Ella Fitzgerald was the most popular female jazz singer and song vocalist in the United States for more than a half century. She interpreted much of the great American songbook, and she worked with all the jazz greats from Duke Ellington, Count Basie, and Nat King Cole, to Frank Sinatra, Dizzy Gillespie, and Benny Goodman. Lady Ella, as she was also dubbed, was the first African-American woman to win a Grammy. And after taking home her first two Grammys in 1958, she would go on to win 11 more. Most don't know the tragedy of her upbringing, though, that growing up trying to make it on the streets of New York, the young Ella helped her family out 
with financial struggles by working as a messenger running numbers and acting as a lookout for a brothel. But her first career aspiration, she wanted to be a dancer. But like many epic American stories, her talent, it could not be hidden. After her mother's death in the early 1930s, Ella had tried to make it on her own and was living on the streets. Still harboring dreams of becoming an entertainer, she entered an amateur contest at Harlem's Apollo Theater. Ella blew the audience away when she sang the Hoagie Carmichael tune, Judy, as well as the object of my affection. And she went on to win the contest's $25 first place prize. This was the performance that launched her career. Today, we offer you an ode to the First Lady of Song, a compilation of some of her performances and through the lens of a poem written about Ella. Here's Sarah Moore performing that piece. I took one look at you That's all I meant to do And then my heart stood still A poem for Ella Fitzgerald By Sonia Sanchez When she came on this stage, this Ella, there were rumors of hurricanes and over the rooftops of concert stages, the moon turned red in the sky. It was Ella, Ella, queen had come and words spilled out, leaving a trail of witnesses smiling. Amen, amen, a woman, a woman. She began this three aged woman, nightingales in her throat and squads of horns came out to greet her. Streams of violins and pianos splash their welcome, and our stained glass silences, our braided spaces unraveled, opened up, said, Who's that coming? Who's that knocking at the door? Whose voice lingers on that stage gone mad with perdido, perdido, perdido? I lost my heart in Toledo. Whose voice is climbing? Up this morning, chimney smoking with life, carrying her basket of words. A tisket, a tasket, my little yellow basket. I wrote a letter to my mommy, and all the way I dropped it. Was it red? No, 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 no. Was it green? No, 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 no. Was it blue? No, 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 no. Voice rescuing razor-thin lyrics from hopscotching dreams. We first watch her navigating an Apollo stage amid high-stepping yellow legs. We watched her watching us. Shiny and pure woman, sugar and spice woman. Her voice a nun's whisper. Her voice pouring out. Guitar thickened blues. Her voice a faraway horn questioning the wind. And she became Ella. First Lady of Tongues, Ella cruising our veins, voice walking on water, crossed in prayer, she became holy. A thousand sermons concealed in her bones as she raised them in a symphonic shudder, carrying our sighs into her bloodstream. This voice, 
Chasing the morning waves, this Elatonian voice soft like four layers of lace. When I die, Ella, tell the whole joint. Please, please don't talk about me when I'm gone. I remember waiting one night for her appearance. Audience impatient at the lateness of musicians. I remember it was April and the flowers ran yellow. The sun downpoured yellow butterflies, and the day was yellow and silent. All of spring held us in a single drop of blood. When she appeared on stage, she became nut arching over us, feet and hands placed on the stage, music flowing from her breasts. She swallowed the sun sang confessions from the evening stars, made earth divulge her secrets, gave birth to skies in her song, remade the insistent air, and we became anointed, found inside her bop. Lady, 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 be good. Be good to me, to you, to us all. Cause we just some lonesome babes in the woods. Hey, lady, sweet Ella, lady, 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 be good. Ella, 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 lady, be good, good, good. And what a beautiful reading by Sarah Moore, Sonia Sanchez's beautiful 1934 poem celebrating Ella Fitzgerald. And Ella was certainly in a class of her own. She redefined jazz and soul for the nation, and she did so while breaking down racial barriers and going against the odds in every conceivable way. No great story is devoid of tragedy, by the way, and Ella sure had her own. She battled drugs, divorce and racism throughout her career and her rise to stardom, and she also suffered from diabetes, which ultimately took her life in 1996. But what she remembered for? That voice. There's nothing like it. That scatting. The performances. She left audience after audience with an experience unlike anything they'd ever known before. There were those musicians that joined trends, and there were those that set trends. But Ella still belonging to a deep and collaborative musical heritage, transform music forever. And while it is her rendition of Mac the Knife in 1960 that broke her into the pop charts, she was still going strong well into the 70s, playing concerts across the globe, doing shows with Frank Sinatra, recording with Duke Ellington, and singing with a Benny Goodman orchestra. She recorded more than 200 albums and sang some 2,000 songs in her lifetime and sold 40 million albums. And while Mel Torme described her as the high priestess of song, in Bing Crosby's own words, quote, man, woman, or child, 
Ella is the greatest of them all. End quote. Ella Fitzgerald's story, her music, in a poem. Sonia Sanchez's poem. Again, a beautiful job here by Sarah Moore. And let's go out with one of my favorites. It's Ella singing the Gershwin classic, Summertime. This is Our American Story. And we continue with our American stories. And as you know, we tell stories about everything here. But the most important stories we tell are our military stories. And this one is a military family story. And you're going to hear right now from Mike McDaniel, a retired U.S. Navy captain himself. He shares with us a few defining moments of his life from way back when, when he was just a little boy, growing up as the son of a naval aviator deployed in Vietnam. We grew up as a Navy family. We had many gatherings where the families would get together, the wives and the children, so we kind of a community within the aviation squadrons. And I remember one day, I can remember it like it was yesterday, May 19th, it was a beautiful day outside, Friday afternoon, happy-go-lucky third grade kid, walking home from school, couldn't wait to get home, spend the weekend playing with my buddies in the neighborhood. And as I approached the house, I noticed there were about a dozen cars in the driveway and along the street. And again, not atypical for a, for a Navy family because they get together, so I didn't think anything out of it. So I went in the house, and as soon as I walked in the house, uh, Mrs. Miles, who was a wife of another squatter mate of my dad's, uh, came up and she says, you're going to come home with me for the weekend and spend the night and with Gary and Larry, they were her sons that were kind of two of my good friends. Oh, okay, so I didn't really have anything planned, but it sounded okay, so uh, we uh, got in her car, and on the way to her house, we stopped at a High's ice cream store. High's ice cream stores at that time were like candy heaven for a kid. You could get ice cream, multi-flavors, and they had these candy racks, you can remember, they were like, you know, they were huge as, as I remember them as a kid. And she said to me, Michael, get whatever you want, as much as you want. Red flag, something, something's not right here, but hey, what a great opportunity. So I remember going up to the candy rack and just stuffing my arms and glancing over her every once in a while to see if I kind of was reaching the threshold. And she just was like, you know, go up for it. So literally, as much as I could carry, I took up to the counter. So whatever. So we went and we had the, spent the night and we, you know, did what ki- little kids do, you know, during a sleepover. And then the next morning she brought me back. And I remember they used to have these big bubblegum sticks back when we were kids. They were called Big Buddies. And there were these long things of bubblegum. And I remember about five minutes out from the house, I tore that thing open. I stuffed that whole thing in my mouth. And... Uh, she got, let me out, say goodbye, so I walked in the house, and my mom met me at the door, and she said, let's go back to your room. I need to tell you something. 
So we walked back to my bedroom and she said, let me hold your bubble gum because what I'm gonna tell you is gonna make you cry. And then she said that my dad had been shot down the previous day over Vietnam and was currently in the jungle of North Vietnam and they were gonna hopefully rescue him later that day. And that was the last thing we heard for the next three years. So for those first three years of his six year time away, we didn't know if he was dead or alive. And I remember my dad telling me, and one of the last things he said to me was, take care of the family while I'm gone. So here we were, I was in the third grade, my brother was two years younger, and my sister was only four. And uh, at the time the Navy had told my mother for us not to tell anybody that he had been shot down, family or friends. And I was just like, how do you do that? How do you go without a father and do this? I remember wanting to think he was okay, but not wanting to think he was okay if he really wasn't. So that was kind of a balance, tough thing to, to, to think through as a young, young boy. The other day I can tell you everything that happened. It was three years later, and it was the day of the solar eclipse in Virginia Beach. I remember the full solar eclipse of the sun, which is kind of a big deal. The community was really playing it up. And I had a little league um, basketball championship game. And I was a pretty decent basketball player back then. And I was spending the night with Petey Bowerman, whose dad was our coach. We had the early game. It was like an 8.30 game. And it was a championship game. Mrs. Bowerman or one of them came in the room and you know we were just waking up. And she says, Michael, your mother's on the phone. I remember these words too. She said, Michael, have some wonderful news. And up until that point, anytime she had said that, I thought something about dad, something about dad. But it would be something like the grandparents are coming to town for the weekend or we're going somewhere. It was like a letdown. And this time I remember vividly thinking the grandparents are coming to town for the weekend. And she says, a list came out today. The North Vietnamese released a list of 14 names of men being held officially as POWs and your dad's names on it. We know he's alive. And it was like the weight of the world came off my shoulders. I went to the basketball game and I normally scored about 10, 12 points. And I think I made a score two. I could really care less what happened with the game. And then the reality set in, okay, he's alive. Now what? Well, let's get this war over with and let's get him home. So I started watching the news, you know, constantly to try to find out what was happening. That was about the time where they were arguing about whether to sit around a round table or a square table to negotiate. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. My dad's being held as a prisoner of war and they're arguing about what size the table's gonna be to talk about. That was a very tumultuous time of the war. And now I understand it better, you know, because of the history of it, but Ho Chi Minh had died. So a lot of, lot of changes were taking place in Vietnam, but the streets were wild with protesters and the, uh, the anti-war movement and it was just like everything was spinning out of control and here's your dad languishing in a prison somewhere. Okay, then let me fast forward to when we found he was coming home. The ceasefire had taken place in the Paris peace talks where they were, they were negotiating and then they announced they were going to release the first wave of POWs that were there the longest and my dad was going to be part of the second wave of prisoners to come home. Well, the first wave came home and that was such a joyous occasion I can remember Jeremiah Denton walking off the plane and doing his God Bless America. It was just wonderful. And, and you knew my dad was going to be in that next wave of those that were released. And then the 
the peace treaty broke down. And so they delayed the release. It was like a bad dream. It's just a horrible feeling. Then they, they finally did have the release date. But something else had happened. Because of the first wave that came out and started getting their debriefings, because they started that right away, they found out about what my dad had gone through in 1969. There was an escape attempt. The Navy psychologists came and sat down with us as children and told us, your dad went through a real rough go. There was some real severe torture. We're not sure what kind of shape he's gonna be in mentally. And that scared me to death as a kid. And I, I guess I appreciate them trying to prepare us, but that's not something you say to a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old. I, I remember being horrified by what, what, what now? What else is coming? So they take off from Hanoi, and we know he's on his way to the Philippines. And this is before internet, this is before cable television, just network television at the time. The plane was going to land in Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, like at four in the morning, our time on the East Coast. So my mom comes in to each of our bedrooms while we're asleep before she wakes us up and takes a Polaroid picture of us sleeping before she wakes us up. I think I'm laying there with my dog with my mouth wide open or something. So she wakes us up as we all gather around the television. And my mom, she's on the floor on her knees in front of the television. And you see this plane land and then it taxis up to the tarmac. And they bring the ladder up, they open the door and the POWs start coming out one by one. And you see this guy, you could tell he was tall, and he's there, and all you see is from about the chest down, and he's adjusting his belt line. We call it a gig line in the Navy. You can make sure your, your shirt is lined up with your pants, trousers, and your belt buckle. It's just a Navy thing, I didn't you know. And you just knew it was him. And my mom dissolves into tears on the floor. I mean, she's just on the floor, just sobbing. And we're like, Mom, not now. Not now, you gotta watch this. So she never saw it. She saw, had to see on the reruns the next day. Then he walks down the ladder. There he is, as large as life. Your dad getting on free soil, you know? That was so cool. So then let me go back to the, the time where they're supposed to come into Norfolk, Naval Air Station Norfolk. And there were like thousands, probably 10,000 people that had come to the airfield to watch this, watch these men come home. They were going to fly to Travis Air Force Base, then to Naval Air Station Norfolk. But it got fogged in. And again, it's like, what next? You know, it was like one more thing that was delaying it. So what they did, they ended up flying into Oceana and then driving from there to the hospital in Portsmouth where they were going to be. So the crowd never saw all that. But they transferred us to the hospital. This black sedan drives up into the conclave of the hospital. And the door opens, and out pops this guy in this Navy khaki, full-dress uniform, who you've been waiting for for seven years because he was almost at, towards the end of a year-long deployment. Large as life, looking so sharp, even though he's pretty skinny. But he just rushes to the family, hugs my mom first, then picks up my sister in his arms, and they all kind of gather around, and he says a few words, and it... It was like, yes, we're there, yes. And you're hearing a grown man recalling a really tough time in his life, almost breaking down and crying. And again, that was Mike McDaniel, a retired U.S. Navy captain. 
and his dad, Captain Eugene Red McDaniel, who flew A-6s in Vietnam, shot down on his 81st combat mission. The son gets the bad news. Three years, third grade, third grade to sixth grade. Is dad dead? Don't know. And then four more years, practically, will dad come home? Don't know. Dad does. What a great story. Mike McDaniel's story, his dad's story, here on Our American Story. For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast. This is Our American Stories, and we tell every kind of story here. And today we have a special kind of sports story. Catherine Switzer was the first woman to officially run the Boston Marathon. Today, we have her telling her whole story of why she ran it and what happened because she did. Here's Catherine. I was the first woman to actually register for the race and pin on a bib and go to the start line and run the Boston Marathon. There was a a woman the year before named Bobby Gibb who jumped in the race um, unregistered um, and I don't want to take anything away from her. But what is really amazing about my story, sometimes the worst things in your life can become the best things in your life. And that is that when I showed up at the starting line of the Boston Marathon. I was I was with my coach, my teammates, and it was a snowy, sleety, horrible day. And yet all the guys in the race were so wonderful and welcoming to me. And they were excited that a woman was registered and signed up for the race. And they would say, hey, I wish my wife would run. I wish my girlfriend would run. Go for it. We're with you all the way. And they were extremely, extremely motivating. And it was a wonderful wonderful time until the gun went off and then down the street we went. I was very, very happy to finally be running the Boston Marathon. And the official truck came by uh, and the press truck came by at the same time. First was the press truck and they were honking at us to move over because they were coming through and taking pictures, shooting from the back of the truck as we were running toward them. And the officials um, and the photographers just went crazy seeing there was a girl in the race wearing bib numbers. And they began teasing one of the officials on the official bus, and his name was Jock Semple. He was the co-race director of the race. And they began teasing him and saying, Hey, Jocko, there's a girl in your race and she's wearing numbers. I wonder what her mother calls her, you know, Kurt, Carrie, or Kim. And they were referring to the race program because I had signed up for the Boston Marathon with my initials, K.V. Switzer. But the reason uh, that it incited the official was because they were teasing him about it. And he jumped off the press bus and went down the street after me and jumped on me and grabbed me and said, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers and tried to rip my bib numbers off. And my coach was trying to get him away from me and he was saying, leave her alone, leave her alone. She's okay, I've trained her. Um, And he swatted my coach away and said, stay out of this. And they came back after me. But my boyfriend was also running with me. And my boyfriend just happened to be 
235-pound ex-All-America football player who was only running the Boston Marathon because if a girl could do it, he could do it. But he came in very handy at that moment because he smacked the official and knocked the official out of the race instead. And my coach screamed, run like hell, and down the street we went. And we were, we were really, really scared. I was absolutely terrified because I didn't know why this official had attacked me. I couldn't understand um, why he was so angry. And, and I began thinking, well, it's probably because he's the race director. He thinks I'm, I'm making a fool of him um, and trying to you know, sneak into the race. When all along, you know, I officially registered because that's what the rules said you had to do. But anyway, um, the whole incident was captured in front of the press truck. And the pictures of this incident were flashed around the world. Even before I finished the race, people around the world were seeing these images of this girl running and girl being attacked by race director and then being saved by burly boyfriend. Because in 1967, that's what people love to think is that, you know, if a girl did something and was a damsel in distress, she was going to get saved by the knight on the white charger. And, and that's essentially what happened. But the whole story was bigger than that. And the whole story was a much bigger one about why women weren't included in the Boston Marathon, why this official was so angry with me for running, what was the problem here. Um, it wasn't the road of free and open space for everybody. So certainly it was a moment that changed my life. I often say I started the Boston Marathon as a girl and I finished the Boston Marathon as a grown woman because the reality is you can't run 26.2 miles. That's the distance of a marathon, 26 miles, 385 yards. You can't run that distance and stay angry. And uh, through the next few miles, I tried to figure out why this official was so angry with me and 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 I, and I was really furious with him and I was afraid of him but along about Heartbreak Hill about 21 miles into the race the anger really left me and it left me with wondering why um, and I said well that's because he's a product of his time he's a man who doesn't believe women can do arduous things and shouldn't be allowed to do them for that reason because maybe he believes that you know it would make us unfeminine or there was something socially wrong with this it was just not appropriate for women to be in what was traditionally a man's race although as i said there were no rules written about this um and i sort of forgave him because he was just a product of his time but then i got angry at women and i kind of wondered where they were you know, the longest distance then in the Olympic Games for women was only 800 meters, twice around the track. And it was always assumed that if a woman ran more than that, that something horrible would happen to her, you know, like she would turn into a man or hair would grow on her chest or she'd turn into some behemoth and her uterus would fall out. She'd never have children. I mean, the myths were just unbelievable. And I think all the women believed those myths. I didn't because I came from a family of great pioneers and, and homesteaders and people who had done very, very tough things. Marathon was no big deal for the likes of my family. And so I was surrounded by the images of women who could do anything in my family. And I realized that the women weren't there in the Boston Marathon because they were afraid. They were afraid of those myths that they had heard and they believed those myths. And they didn't have any opportunities to prove otherwise or reinforcement to prove otherwise or, you know, belief and encouragement to prove otherwise. And then I realized if I could create opportunities for women 
so that they could feel as good as I felt. Felt very empowered and strong. If I could do that for them, then we could really, really change a lot of things. And you're listening to the voice of Katherine Switzer. I started the Boston Marathon as a girl. I finished it as a grown woman. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, that pioneer spirit she was taught, there it was for the world to see. Katherine Switzer's story continues here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we left off hearing Catherine Switzer's story of being the first woman to officially run in the Boston Marathon. And it seems almost, well, unthinkable now that we thought these things, but we did. And by the way, lots of doctors thought these things. We return to her story, though, and how she came to run the race in the first place. Running had given me just about everything in my life, and that, that I had felt great, I felt empowered, and it had reflected in many other areas of my life, not just running. So by the time I crossed the finish line, I already had kind of a life plan, which was to create opportunities for women in running, and also for me to become a better athlete. I finished that first Boston Marathon in four hours and 20 minutes. And I knew people were going to tease me um, and not take me seriously because in those days, in the late 60s, the only people who ran were people who ran well, and or pretty well anyway. Very few people just jogged. And people would say, oh, that's just a jogging time. And that's exactly what happened. The next day, the official himself who threw me, tried to throw me out of the race said I could walk it that fast. I mean, that was really a horrible thing to say on top of everything else. And the fact is, is that you can't walk it that fast, <laughs> not even close. And, um, and so I said, okay, watch me. I'm gonna try to become a good athlete. But let's go back and think about what got me there in the first place. Because I think knowing a person's history and why they were motivated to do something and how and who changed their lives is the, maybe the, even the bigger part of the story. And in my case, I began running when I was 12 years old because I wanted to make the field hockey team in my high school. And I was a little skinny girl, prepubescent, very nervous about going to a big high school with, with grown-ups essentially there. Um, and my father said, listen, if you want to make that field hockey team, you should run a mile a day. And if you'd run a mile a day, you'd be one of the best players on the team. He was really a very motivating guy, very convincing. and. So I said, oh God, I could never run a mile a day. And he said, sure you could, you could do it right now. I know you could. And he um, helped uh, me measure off our yard. It was seven laps. And all through Washington DC, stinking hot summer, I ran this mile a day in preparation for the autumn when I would go to high school to try out for the field hockey team. And my dad was right when I tried out for the team. I, it was really one of the best players, not because I had any skills. I mean, I never even had a stick in my hand but because I never got tired and I was in great condition and I could just about outrun everybody. 
So when I made that team, I felt really, really proud of myself. And so I kept running every day because I felt maybe it was magic. I didn't realize it was just conditioning. I thought in my kind of little childish brain that this is pure magic. Well, my little brain was, was actually 100% right because I've been running for 58 years and it is magic. You know, the, the, whole, the whole thing about running is not really just about conditioning or, or getting fast or becoming a good athlete. It's really about the sense of empowerment and strength and confidence and accomplishment that it gives you. And so here I was now going into um, my teenage years and going into high school feeling like I had a victory under my belt every day that nobody could take away from me. And that was really, really important for kids who, you know, you're facing all kinds of odd behaviors and meeting people, um, you know, and, and, and you don't know kind of how to make proper choices. And if you feel really confident about yourself, it helps you make a decision that's, that's a right decision and not a wrong decision in many cases. And it was phenomenal that also it, it perpetuated the, the concept for me of that if I could do that, that, like a mile a day, I bet I could run two miles a day. If I could make the field hockey team, I bet I could write for the school newspaper. I've always used running as an empowerment tool for myself to give me confidence to take on some of the most insane challenges you can imagine. And things I would never imagine doing or things that have happened to me, um, I've been able to both endure, prevail over, or continue on with even something better because I've had the confidence that the running has given me. It's amazing. In a bigger sense, that's what's the most important part of the story is the transformational experience of running for women and how it changes their lives and helps them um, control their lives in ways they never believed they could and to take on responsibilities and make decisions that they were denied for many, many years. Because they say, you know, if I can run a mile, then I can run five miles. And then they run 10 miles. And then when they run a marathon, 26.2 miles, they realize they can do anything. When I went to university after high school, I was running three miles a day and I wanted to um, naturally run at university as well. But uh, Syracuse University at the time had absolutely no intercollegiate sports for women, if you can imagine that. And I didn't know what to do. So I decided that I would ask the men's track coach and cross country coach if I could come and run on the men's team. Now I never would have had the courage to do that if I hadn't had that base all through high school of running. But I did and he was very nice but you could see he was trying hard not to laugh at me. Um, he said I couldn't run officially on the team, it was against NCAA rules but um, he would welcome me if I wanted to come and work out with the team. And I did, and he was very, very surprised that I showed up. This was the, on the eve of the women's liberation movement. It was the autumn of 1966. And I thought when I went out to run with the men that they would think I was trying to be in their face, that I was trying to you know, show that I was tough and I deserved to be on the team. And I wasn't that way at all, and they didn't perceive that. They really encouraged and motivated me and were very happy to see me and very, very welcoming. 
One guy in particular was the volunteer coach for the team who was an ex-marathoner. Uh, he was 50 when I met him and I always joke that he was really ancient, you know, <laughs> 50 years old, I was 19. Um, and he felt really sorry for me because all these boys that were running were scholarship boys and they were fast. I couldn't keep up with them at all. Um, I was running three miles a day. They were running like six or eight miles a day. And this guy, his name was Arnie Briggs, had been an ex-marathoner. And he was now injured. Bad knees, bad Achilles. So he decided to start just jogging with me. And as we jogged along, he would tell me stories of his ancient running days, including 15 Boston marathons. And every night out running together after, after classes, he would tell me another story about the Boston Marathon. And, you know, here I was, you know, I had heard of the Boston Marathon and kind of in the back of my mind, I always thought that that would be kind of a dream goal to one day have. But here I was every day learning about Clarence DeMar and Tarzan Brown and Johnny the Kelly the Elder and Johnny Kelly the Younger. All these heroes of the sport became sort of my Olympian gods, if you see what I mean. And pretty soon, as it always does in Syracuse, by even by late October, it began snowing and the snow was coming down and all the men in the cross country team finished their season and they went inside to run in the field house on the, on the indoor track. And it was so stuffy and, and smelly and hot in there. Um, I said to Arnie, my coach, uh, now he's my coach, my running partner, let's stay outside and run. And he said, have you ever run through a Syracuse winter? You'd never been here before. And I said, well, it can't be that tough. Well, you have no idea. I mean, it was like a hundred and what, 90 inches of snow that year. And there were days and nights that it was 30 and 40 degrees below zero. It was absolutely incredible. But I kept hearing the stories of the old Boston marathons and Arnie and I would plow through the snow and plow through the darkness together. And he would tell me all these stories again and again. And finally, one night um, in January, I said, I'm so sick of hearing about the Boston Marathon. Let's just run it. And then this was the, uh, the first big turning point. Arnie, my beloved coach and friend, said, a woman can't run the Boston Marathon. Women are too weak and too fragile. And I burst out laughing. I said, we are out here running 10 miles in a blizzard in the dark, and you're telling me I can't run a marathon? And he said, 10 miles is not 26. And he said, a woman can't do it. Women are too weak and too fragile. And boy, did we argue. And I finally threatened him with not running with him anymore if he didn't believe some woman somewhere could run the Boston Marathon. And I reminded him that I had read in the newspaper that Roberta Gibb had run the Boston Marathon the year before. And he just burst out in anger and he said no dame ever ran no marathon. He just couldn't believe, get his mind around the fact that a woman could do this, this, you know, ultimate distance. And when we come back, you're going to hear Catherine's rebuttal to her friend and her coach and her mentor. And she was going to prove him wrong all by herself. Catherine Switzer's story continues here on Our American Stories.
And we return to the story of Catherine Switzer. And of course, she had been told by so many people up till now that, well, women just shouldn't be running in marathons, not certainly the Boston Marathon. And this is her story and her voice. And my goodness, what a voice. Let's pick up where we last left off. Her mentor, friend, and coach, Arnie Briggs, had told her, there's just no way dames should be running in any marathon. Let's hear Catherine's rebuttal. Finally, he said, look, if any woman could do it, I believe you could do it, but even you would have to prove it to me. And he said, in fact, if you'd run the distance and practice, I'd be the first person to take you to the Boston Marathon. And I said, hot diggity, there you go. I've got a coach, I've got a goal, I've got a dream. Um, And best of all, I've got a running buddy and I'm gonna show him that we can do this. So we trained and trained and trained and trained and oh gosh, I would say it was late March and came the day we were gonna do 26 miles in practice. Um, When we were finishing up the 26 miles, Arnie, my coach was so impressed, he said, Wow. He said, I can't believe it. You look great. He said, I'm, I'm convinced. He said, you know, uh, I'm really, really, really impressed that you can do this distance. And I said, you know, I think we mismeasured the course. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I think it's short. I think we should do another five miles just to make sure when we go to Boston that nothing can stop us, that we can, it's, it's, we can finish that whole race. And he said, oh, come on. You're not serious about running another five miles. I said, yeah, let's just keep going. Let's do another loop. So we're running now 31 miles. And in the last mile of this workout, Arnie began uh, passing out during the course of the workout. And um, I said, come on, Arnie, we can do this. We can do this. And he was just gone on his feet, just weaving all over the road. I said, come on, one more mile. Come on, come on. I put my arm through his. I pulled him along. I said, come on, come on, one more mile. We can do it. And when we finished this last piece, came across our imaginary finish line. I threw my arms around him. I said, we did it. We're going to Boston. And he passed out. And when he came to, he said, women have hidden potential in endurance and stamina. It was an amazing moment. It was an amazing moment because both of us had discovered something really interesting, that the longer it got, the better I got. That when we went out to run eight or 10 miles and the guys on the team would come and run with us, you know, they were always pushing the pace and I couldn't keep up with them. But when it got to 12, 15 miles, we were pretty evenly matched. And then after that, they said, you know, the hell with you guys. We don't want to, we don't want to run any further than this. This is crazy stuff. And really what was happening was that, that as the distance got better, my natural attributes, the female natural attributes of endurance and stamina were really kicking in. The ability to have fat, more fat than men, convert that fat to a fuel source, to stay warm and have still energy over the long haul, really, really paid off. Even to the point where Arne himself, a trained marathoner, couldn't take the distance. And it was an amazing moment to realize that. And now it's something that's changing the way we're looking at female athletes in general. You know, For 3,000 years, the Olympics have been about strength, speed, power. Men men excel in those things, in jumping higher, throwing further, hitting harder, going faster. But when it comes to flexibility, balance, stamina and endurance, women have it all over the guys. The problem is, is that for 3,000 years, we haven't had the opportunity to have sports. 
So, I mean, until very, very recently, in terms of the world's history of sport, it's only been in the last 75 to 100 years that we have been able to participate in, in sports and have sports in competitions and in the in public, etc. So what we're, we're looking at now is really an exciting era. The next 50 years are going to be very, very exciting when sports perhaps and events will be created that you and I can't even imagine um, that take advantage of women's unique capabilities. I would say getting attacked by the official in the Boston Marathon was at that point in my life certainly the worst thing that had ever happened to me. I was humiliated, I was embarrassed, I was made to uh, feel ashamed, um, and I was second-guessing myself and my worthiness to be in this race. And it wasn't until I had that split second of, should I quit? Should I, should I step out of this race? Am I doing something wrong? It was just a split second of fear where I wanted to really go home to my mother. And then I realized if I did that, nobody would believe that women could run a marathon. Nobody would believe that women deserve to be there. They would say, oh, these women are just barging into places where they're not welcome and they can't do it anyway. And I knew then that I had to finish that race. And that was the biggest and most important decision I think I've ever made in my life because it changed the whole rest of my life. People often say, um, oh, Catherine, you were destined for this moment of running this race, of, of colliding with the official, of the photographs of the incident going around the world. Those photographs probably would have gone around the world, but the bigger story is what happened afterwards. Things happen to everybody, but often people don't act on what happens. I acted on what happened. I made the decision to finish the race, even if I was going to finish on my hands and my knees if I had to. And I wanted to prove to the world that women could do this. But it was the actualization then in the race itself with the time I had to think that I realized that if women only had the same opportunities that I had, an encouraging father, an encouraging men's team, a coach named Arnie, you know, who ran with me and encouraged me. Um, all of these things really helped me and most women didn't have those. So when I finished the race, as I said, I wanted to become a better athlete and I wanted to create these opportunities. Becoming a better athlete was the easiest part of the conversation. Maybe not easy, but simple anyway, because training works. I trained very hard. I trained really hard. Sometimes I trained over 100 miles a week, twice a day workouts, a 27 mile run every Sunday, and I got to be pretty good. In fact, I won the New York City Marathon and I was second in Boston with a two hour and 51 minute marathon performance, which even by today's standards is excellent. And for a long time, it was an Olympic qualifier. But I realized then that I realized if I could do that, how much talent existed out there that wasn't getting the same opportunity or didn't have the same drive or the same confidence to do that kind of um, training and that kind of work. So I then decided the most important thing is to get women official into events. A group of women, uh, myself included, worked hard at Boston to get women official in Boston. We were successful with that in 1972. And then we organized the first ever women's road race in Central Park, the mini marathon. 
And that was such a success. I realized that women maybe wanted their own events so that they wouldn't be intimidated by being around stronger, faster people. And I began organizing uh, and getting sponsorship for a series of women's races around the world, ultimately becoming known as the Avon International Running Circuit. And this became a career for me where eventually we organized 400 races in 27 countries for over a million women. And the data and statistics that we got from those races allowed for the marathon to be included in the Olympic Games because the Olympic Committee um, uh, had the data on performances, the data on international participation, and with sponsorship money, we were able to get some doctors to write up reports showing that women actually were better at endurance events than power events. So with this evidence in hand, we went to the International Olympic Committee and were admitted into the Olympic Games as an official Olympic event for the first time in 1984. And you're hearing Catherine Switzer, and what a story. It just keeps getting better. Her push, her drive to, well, find out what women can do. What were the real boundaries? We're about to find out more. Catherine Switzer's story here on Our American Stories. To hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our newsletter, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Turn to Our American Stories and go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter and you'll get stories just like this one. Five of our best ones each week right into your mailbox. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and we'll get you our five best stories of the week. Sign up for our free and terrific weekly newsletter. And we're returning now to Catherine's story. She went on to do much more after that 1967 race. We left off hearing that Catherine had successfully gotten the marathon to be a part of the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles, California. There it is. She's about to go into the tunnel. Now, the people in the Coliseum, most of them know what's going on because part of this race has been up on that big television screen. So they have been watching it. They certainly know what the situation is. And I'm sure they are right now anticipating the imminent arrival of Joan Benoit as she gets into some welcome shade and then very shortly out into the sunlight. When Joan Benoit Samuelson won that race, the American from Maine, when she came into the stadium, 90,000 people, you know, stood on their feet and screamed and cheered. It was utterly, utterly fantastic. It was something to me that was um, the ultimate in acceptance. But more than that, it was a television broadcast to 2.2 million people that showed convincingly that women could run heroically, strong, deserve to be in the Olympic Games, and deserve their equality. 
it was an absolute game changer, absolute leveling of the playing field in running. Everybody knows how far 26.2 miles or 42.2 kilometers is. Everybody understands distance because they've walked it or they've ridden a bike over the distance or driven it or even ridden a donkey in some countries. And when people from around the world saw women running and running so well, they all understood what that meant. They meant it meant that they had underestimated women's capacity for achievement. Um, and even heroism. So that to me was as important as giving women the right to vote because the vote was about our social and intellectual acceptance and this was about our physical acceptance. The Olympics are the ultimate really in sports recognition and now we were running the toughest event uh, in the highest forum uh, just like the men. And there isn't a tougher event in the Olympic Games than the marathon. So that to me was about the physical equality. And that's why it was to me com comparable to giving women the right to vote. One was about intellectual and social acceptance, the other about the physical acceptance. He has done it. Joan Lenore, the winner of the first ever Olympic Women's Marathon. When you think then about the future, which I think about all the time now, um, you say, wow, we've achieved that. The rest is going to be easy. Well, the rest is never easy. Even now, all these years later, there are women in the world who are not allowed to go out of the house alone, not allowed to have their own passport, not allowed to drive a car or get an education. All the old myths still prevail, and women believe them because they have no opportunity to believe anything else. You only know what's around you. You can dream of some things, but you really only understand what's closest to you. So with that in mind, who would have ever imagined that my old bib number, 261, the number that the race official tried to pull off of me way back in 1967, suddenly became this magic number around the world, quite, quite virally, and it was really amazing. Uh, became a number meaning fearless in the face of adversity. People were sending me pictures of themselves running their first race, and on their front they would have their official bib number from, you know, the Tokyo Marathon or the New York City Marathon or whatever, but on their back they would be wearing 261. And when people started sending me pictures of their tattoos, I began to take this really seriously. I didn't know what kind of movement was occurring from my old bib number. So I got together with some friends of mine and we decided, what are we going to do with this? Do we create a business? And actually what we decided to do is to create a nonprofit. We created the nonprofit 261 Fearless as a way of empowering women around the world to take the first step in running or even walking. Because we know if they go out and walk or run and have somebody with them who believes in them and encourages them, they can overcome so much else in their life. Because as I said before, running itself is transformational. And if they have the courage to take that first step and we can help give them the courage to take that first step, they too can become empowered and aspire to so much more in their lives. Running can change everything. It has already around the world. We've created a social revolution 
um, in North America. There are more women runners now in North America than men, and these women are not running to be Olympic athletes. These women are running because it empowers them, and this movement is going globally. And we are hoping that 261 Fearless will reach places, and we're working very hard on this, to reach places where women have no opportunities whatsoever. And they're going to be difficult to reach in some places and difficult to engage, perhaps. But, you know, running has done it before, and it'll do it again. You know, you're never too old. You're never too slow. You're never too big. You're never too unathletic to put on a pair of sneakers and let running, walking, jogging change your life. I've seen it a million times. And every time you go out and you watch a marathon, you will see people who you couldn't ever imagine uh, could do this event, 26 miles, 385 yards. There are people without arms or legs who are blind, people in wheelchairs, people who push themselves along, people who take a day or two or even five to cover the distance, but they do it. The capacity for human achievement is absolutely astonishing. One of the greatest moments in my life happened April of 2017, which was when I decided, hey, you know what? I'm still in pretty good shape. I'm going to run the Boston Marathon for my 50th anniversary. And no other woman has ever done that. There are plenty of 70-year-old, 80-year-old, even 90-year-old women who have run marathons, but nobody has run one 50 years after she first did, which is just testimony to how few women ran 50 years ago. But to go through the streets of Boston 50 years later and to have all of those thousands and thousands of spectators cheering for you, many, many hundreds of whom knew my story and had big posters that they held up, said, go Catherine, go 261 Fearless, go women, equality for women, was really, really phenomenal. And it was amazing how easy the race was. Every mile got faster for me. And when I came across the finish line in 444, I was really only 24 minutes slower than I was when I was 20 years old. And I love telling this story because I just really want to encourage people to realize you're never too old and you're never too slow to get it back, to feel that sense of health and optimism, and to realize that the future of good health for all of us really may be staying active all your life. People always ask me about Jock Semple and what happened to him and did he ever apologize? Well, frankly, no, he never apologized. But after five years, um, we became best of friends. And people are astonished to hear this. But here's the point. He was a man of his time. And when we became official in the Boston Marathon five years after I ran in 1972, he suddenly became very aware, he had to become aware of the fact that women were taking running seriously, that we loved running. And that's what he saw finally. And he came up to me on the starting line of the Boston Marathon the following year and gave me a big kiss on the cheek. He was a Scotsman. And he said, come on, lass, let's get a wee bit of notoriety and turn me to these TV cameras. And the photographs of Jock Semple and Catherine Switzer making up on the starting line of the Boston Marathon was a photograph that, that really spoke volumes about how people can change. Um, and to me, how important forgiveness is. Because I really forgave Jock Semple when we came over Heartbreak Hill in the 1967 race. You know, I realized he was a product of his time. In a way, it wasn't even his fault. I visited him, in, in fact, a few hours before he died. And people say, whoa, that's a lot of forgiveness. And I say, yeah, you know, life is actually too short not to forgive. 
And over the years, we had become good friends. And I wanted to see one last time and say goodbye to a man who completely not only changed my life, but changed millions of women's lives. So he was, in fact, a guy who helped the women's running movement probably more than anybody else in spite of himself. And what a story and what a voice, folks. Sometimes the worst things in life, she said, become the best things in life. And my goodness, that Jack Semple tackled her and that she forgave him and became friends, a testimony to how to live a life. What a story, one of our favorites here on Our American Stories. And by the way, to hear all that we do, again, go to Our American Network. Sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Our five best stories will come to you and you'll feel better about being a human being, better about being an American. Stories like these, they're everywhere. We'd love to hear yours. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Catherine Switzer's story, the story of women and sports in America, here on Our American Stories.